campus of Yale University. This is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today on the pod, giant best-selling author Daniel Pink, whose work is super helpful for anyone interested in a creative career and motivation or how to maximize work and writing potential. Thank you to my mom who pointed out his book When to me, which I absolutely devoured. So how do you organize your writing day? Dan goes really deep into this and in when. If you're a screenwriter or TV writer working on a pilot, you're probably terminating your own hours, more or less. And if you're like me, you're absolutely obsessed with figuring out how to maximize it for the most productive day. Should you start writing first thing in the morning or get your to-do list squared away and then dive in? What part of the day should you go to the gym to maximize creativity, to maximize weight loss, to maximize happiness? How long at a time should you write for? Should you take breaks? Should you take naps? Dan gives answers to all of these questions based on the extensive research that he's compiled. Uh, the full title of his book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and it's just a really fun, great read. Uh, the book spent four months on the New York Times bestseller list and was named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, Goodreads, iBooks, and a bunch of other places. Dan's main argument in the book is that we spend so much time focused on what we're doing, we ignore something equally important which is when we're doing it. Dan has written four New York Times bestsellers. His TED Talk on the science of motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time, with more than 20 million views. He has a BA from Northwestern, a JD from Yale, and honorary doctorates from Georgetown and other places. And this is his second career, by the way. In the 90s, he was chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. Now, right before we bring in Dan, I've gotten uh, emails from listeners and people have reached out on Twitter asking what I'm watching that I'd recommend. So I thought I'd give a quick recommendation once in a while, um, you know, when I see something I love. So on the flight home from LA last week, I watched a movie that I've been meaning to watch forever. It's called The Swimmer from 1968. It stars Burt Lancaster and was written by Eleanor Perry. It was directed by Frank Perry, but he was fired and a really young Sidney Pollack came in to finish it. Now, I know this isn't news to anyone who's seen it, but oh my God, it is one of the most extraordinary movies I've ever seen. The movie is based on a John Cheever short story from The New Yorker. So one of its big themes is the suburban malaise and dark underbelly uh, of the suburbs that Cheever is just so good at. The movie came out the year after The Graduate, when studios were trying to figure out how far into surrealism and postmodernism they could go. This movie goes far. Burt Lancaster plays a middle-aged suburban dad who's swimming in a neighbor's pool, looks out over the canyon and decides he's gonna swim home. Meaning he's gonna go house to house, swimming across their backyard pools until he reaches home. People think he's crazy, of course, but he's determined. As he goes, we meet the owners of all the houses on his route and a mystery and sense of dread about what's really going on with Lancaster permeates every single scene. The people in the houses become more and more cruel to him as he progresses, and he reveals himself to be more and more not the guy that we thought he was in the beginning. I don't want to say any more, but go watch this movie. Like, uh, seriously, go watch it tonight. All right, without further ado, best-selling author, Dan Pink. 
So I read When over the weekend, uh, and I absolutely loved it. You know, I'm someone who is really obsessed with trying to figure out um, the best time of day to write. Um, so are all my friends who are screenwriters and TV writers. You know, do we write in the morning? Do we write in the afternoon? When are our when are our brains? When when is it most conducive to to get you know creative writing done? To get pages done? Um, and it sounds like maybe those are different answers based on reading your book. Um, but I thought maybe we could start by you explaining um, the Linda problem because I was fascinated about how you were sort of saying we screwed up later in the day. Uh, the Linda problem is a really interesting problem. It comes from a fellow named Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics in the early 2000s. I love him and wrote a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, it's a hard book to read. It's, it's, it's it a is. very interesting book. I found, it, I found it somewhat tough sledding, but it's worth it. And his insights are profound. I mean, at, at, there, there are very few living thinkers today who have had the kind of impact that, that, that he has had. Yeah. And so one of his problems is this, and you want me to just to give it to your listeners and let them ponder it? I would love it. Okay. So here's how it goes. So I'm going to describe to you a person, and then I'm going to ask not only you, Aaron, but your millions of listeners out there a question. So Linda, here's a woman named Linda. She's 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. In college, she majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and she participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now, before I tell you anything else about her, I want to ask all of you a question, and it's this. Which of the following is more likely? Which of the following is more likely? A, Linda is a bank teller. B, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So which is more likely? A, Linda is a bank teller. B, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Right. And it's 1.45 p.m. when we're recording this on the East Coast. <laughs> and so according to your book, I am more likely to flub the answer, right? It depends on, it depends on uh, what your chronotype is. But let's just say most people uh, will... So let's talk about what the right answer is, okay. because what's interesting about this is that most people don't get the right answer. A lot of people want to say, oh, the answer is B. She's a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. That makes perfect sense, given what we know about her background. She's right. young. She's single. She participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. But that is the wrong answer. Right. And what's interesting about this is that it's not a matter of opinion. This is basically, at some level, a very simple math problem. The reason it's more likely that Linda is a bank teller rather than Linda is a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement is that B, that second answer, has two conditions rather than one. Or to put it even more simply, uh, bank tellers who are active in the feminist movement are a subset of bank tellers right. who, uh, of bank tellers. And so a subset can never be larger than the subset of which it is part. So this is what, what Kahneman calls the conjunction fallacy. And so it's a test of analytic reasoning. And, and what the research has found generally is this. Um, mo mo most people are inclined to get this question right in the morning, and wrong later in the day. Now, there's some. So let's just stop there for a second. And yeah. the reason for that is is this: that what we know from a variety of research, including some work from Kahneman, but just uh, just a whole mess of other kinds of research from many many domains, is that is the following: that we tend to move through the day in three stages: a peak, a trough, and a recovery. A peak, a trough, and a recovery. Most of us move through the day in that order. About 80% of us move through the day in that order. Peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. Now, about 20% of us, about one in five of us-ish, one in four, 
are different from that. We actually hit our peak much, 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 much later in the day, late afternoon, into the evening, even into the late evening. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. So what we know about this, about these these changes in our mood and in our cognitive abilities is, is this, that during the peak, again, which for four out of five of us is the morning, for one out of five of us is much, much, much later in the day. And just when you say the morning, are you talking about several hours? Are you talking about, what, two hours? It depends on it depends on the person. There's okay. it's, it, there's considerable variance on 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 that. So you know, it's just basically earlier in the you know sometime in the morning, and okay. it's it's not for like like you know five fleeting minutes. It's it's for some you know some amount of time in the morning. Mm-hmm. Let's call it you know a few hours. Um, what we know about the peak is that that during those few hours, that's when we are most vigilant. And this is the key here. That's when we are most vigilant. During our peak, that's when we're most vigilant. And what vigilance means is we're able to bat away distractions. And what this means is that that makes the peak the best time for doing work that is like the Linda problem, that requires basically focus, attention to certain, certain kinds of things that at some level bend to mathematical logic. And so what you have is you have people who have chronotypes that are, or a chronotype is basically, do you wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you wake up late and go to sleep late? Are you more of a lark? Are you more of an owl? Or are you in between? And so people who are larks and people who are owls, people who are in between, People who are larks and people who are in between, which again represents about four to five of us, they tend to get that Linda problem right in the morning and wrong later in the day. But people who are owls, who have an evening chronotype, who just naturally get up late and go to sleep late, they tend to get that Linda problem right late in the day, late you know into the evening and wrong earlier in the day. Right. So fascinating that something that could seem, I'm sure when you ask the question, a lot of people, it was just an obvious answer. Um, But for a lot of people, I'm sure they were kicking themselves when you finally did give the answer because they couldn't figure it out. Um, Sure. it, It freaks me out that we could be so blind to our own sort of logical fallacies throughout the day. Oh. Oh man, oh man. I mean, so so I mean, there, there, there you know, there, I think there are two facets of that. One of them is again that most people get that question wrong. So it shows you how our thinking often goes awry and how we fall down the abyss of all of these cognitive biases right. and and mental glitches. Um, I think that for the purposes of timing, this line of research is relevant because it shows. I think one of the most important findings, broad findings in this entire body of research on the science of timing. And it is this, our brain power, our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. They change, they change in predictable ways and they change sometimes in significant ways. And I wish someone had told me this much, much, much earlier in my life. I think we, we, we go into certain aspects of our work thinking that, oh, you know, all times of day are more or less created equal. And they're not. Our brain power changes over the course of a day. And so knowing how it changes, and there's nuance in this, there's not a universal single recipe, um, can make a big difference in determining the right time of the day to to do things. But here's, I mean, here's a complication though that I got from reading your book, which is, you know, so, so the answer to that seems to me, you know, I'm, I'm writing a bunch of projects right now. So my new thing is I get up and before I do anything, I force myself to write for two hours. Um, because that's, I guess I'm a, I'm a lark or I'm, I'm in between who's trying to be a lark. And so Mm -hmm. I try to get a lot of work done, but um, you said that at the end of the day, while we're less likely to get the Linda problem right, we are more likely to have insight 
some kinds of insight, I guess. And for a creative writer, that seems crucial to me. So I want to be writing when that when those insights are are available to me, right? Yeah. Yes. But but I, it's it's a great great question, Aaron. And as a as a as a writer who isn't necess- who's not doing fiction, who's not doing you know conjuring stories, uh, I thought about this quite a bit. And I'll t- I'll tell you how I'll tell you how I think about this. So let me take a step back and explain exactly what you were talking great. about. So what what this research shows again is this. So we go through the day in three stages: peak, trough, recovery. And again, eighty percent of us, you have your peak early in the day, your trough in the middle of the day early to mid-afternoon, and then you have what a recovery late in the day. Now, the recovery late in the day uh, is, is very, very interesting because let's so, so for me, you know, I'm, I'm not a full-fledged lark, but I lean toward the lark side of the spectrum. So late in the day, what happens is this. Our mood is, is actually pretty high, but our vigilance is not. So we've got low vigilance, lower vigilance, certainly than during the peak, and higher mood. So that combination makes that a good time for things that require some amount of mental looseness, iterating new ideas, brainstorming, solving non-obvious problems. And there's certain kinds of problems, exactly as you say, called insight problems, are the sorts of things that don't necessarily bend to mathematical logic that we do better at that time of day. Now, let's circle back here to writing because, um, I think that there's some general design principles, although I would encourage the people, the the writers who are listening to this to actually just test this on their own. So one of them, again, is you got to figure out your chronotype. We can get back to that in a moment. But here's how I look at it. I think that most writing, no matter what the kind of writing it is, should be done during people's peak. Hmm. The reason for that is that as Every, as you know, Aaron, from your work, as I know, as every writer knows, the moment somebody sits down to write, so your butt hits the chair and, you know, for you, you open up final draft or for me, I open up word. The moment you sit in the chair and your fingers hit the keyboard at that precise moment, the entire universe begins conspiring for ways to distract you. <laughs> right. And, and so I think that it's essential to do your writing, at least some of your writing during that period of non-distractability. Right. And so for, for screenwriters and things, I would say, do your writing during your peak. Again, if your peak is the morning, if you're 80% or late, 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 late in the day, if you're part of the 20%. Um, However, so just do your writing and crank out your pages during that peak when you're not distractible. Now, I think that you can use your recovery, that recovery stage. Again, for most of us, late in the afternoon, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, you can use that for something else. You could leave, uh, let's say, a plot point open Mm -hmm. perhaps during and and then on the during the recovery period go to your whiteboard and say i'm going to come up with 10 wacky ways to move this forward okay or or you could go to hey what i'm what i'm going to do is i'm going to talk to another one of my writer friends and we are going to brainstorm ideas for her screenplay and now we're going to brainstorm ideas for my screenplay at that time of day right um i think what you could do is you could read your pages over and go out for a walk or go out for a run and just let it incubate during that time right so i think that 
in in general because writing is so 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 difficult and 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 non-writers don't understand how difficult writing is and right. how much the world is basically designed and conspiring to destroy you especially with that, twitter yeah the whole world is I mean, this is an. I'm obviously being very egocentric here. But I think the universe is designed to distract writers. Yeah, I hear you. When God created, like on the second day, God created distractions for writers, <laughs> and so that's why I think it's so essential that writing be done during that peak period, that period of low distractibility. However. Writers can use that recovery period for other kinds of things. So, for instance, for me, I change my schedule so that I write in the morning. L like you, I mean, I, I do think there's a, there's an advantage in certain kinds of rigidity during that peak period. So, for me, your rigidity is two hours. My rigidity is a is a word count. I have to hit my word count before I do anything else. Mm -hmm. But for me, what I'll do later in the day, I'll do a lot. I'll do most of my almost all of my interviews. Because I'm not an investigative reporter, I'm not trying to catch people in lies or anything like that. I'm more inclined to interview somebody, you know, a scholar or something like that and say, hey, you know, does that mean, I, I just I'm wondering whether there's any uh, any evidence that the stages of life are being remade. Does, it, does, that, does that sound plausible to you? What do you think about that? Do you think there's a connection between this paper uh, on rutabagas and this paper over here on supply chains in Bangladesh? And those kinds of interviews and those kinds of conversations, to me, are much more fruitful during that recovery period. That's interesting. I mean, there's also something, you know, so many of my favorite writers write with a drink in hand. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I think part of that, I mean, obviously part of that is to just sort of, you know, null the, the fear, um, uh -huh. numb the fear. But I think part of it, um, you know, like at the end of the day, recovery, if we've worked hard all day, maybe if we've gone to the gym or if we just produced a lot of pages or we've taken the kids to school or whatever it is, we're a little bit drunk at the end of the day, even without drinking. Interesting. And Interesting. Um, I think that does help a little bit in terms of making your mind a little bit less scared. And I know when I'm less scared, like when I'm in the shower or, you know, I'm in a relaxed state, I'm much more able to solve problems. Well, I mean, Aaron, the, the mechanisms underlying what you just said are spot on. I mean, basically, the reason that we are better at insight problems, better at brainstorming, better at iterative kinds of things late in the day rather than earlier in the day is precisely because our vigilance has declined. And so we are, I mean, another way of talking about dec declining vigilance, vigilance is we are more disinhibited and mm. alcohol has the same effect. Right. Alcohol is disinhibiting. And so now again, you can be too disinhibited. So you, right. you, you know, you're slurring your speech and you can't find the keyboard, but you, but, but that level of disinhibition is actually very helpful for certain kinds of cognitive tasks. Th that said, I still, believe that a lot of writing requires vigilance just because to get that first draft on the page requires enormous amounts of discipline and focus. And right. you always are going to have time to write and redo. Now, I've thought about this in another context that I think is relevant, and it's a, it, it taps a different aspect, sort of kind of sort of related aspect of social science um, and creation. Uh, there, so one way that certain social psychologists, certain developmental psychologists think about brain tasks, cognitive tasks is this. Some tasks are algorithmic. Some tasks are heuristic. Some tasks you actually are basically just cranking stuff out following an algorithm. Others of them are require an expansive focus. You're not following an algorithm. And 
And what the research, let me take another piece of research on deadlines. Deadlines are end up being extremely effective for algorithmic tasks and far less effective for heuristic tasks. Extremely effective for cranking out tasks, less effective for blue sky tasks. But I think that there is a moment in writing when a task kind of morphs from heuristic to algorithmic. And I'm probably, I don't want to empty the room here by continuing this for too long, but <laughs> there's a moment when the task shifts from algorithmic to, from, from heuristic to algorithmic. So what I would do is I would put, like for me in my work, like I would never put a deadline on you have until X to come up with an idea for a book because that's totally heuristic. But I would put a deadline saying you have until X to finish chapter one. Right. Because I right. think that things, and, and so, so I think that writers, Again, what, what I, I think that the real lesson here for, 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 for writers is think about this stuff and try things out on your own. So tr try out the, you know, Aaron's method of this dedicated time in the morning. See if that works for you. Mm -hmm. See if you get your pages out. Try this thing where you're doing your more iterative brainstorming stuff later in the day. See if that works for you. Most important of all, if you are an owl, if you're an evening chronotype, then do your stuff, do your main stuff much, much, much later in the day and maybe try to experiment with doing your some of your brainstorming when you are, um, you know, a little bit early in the day when when you're so sleepy, you're disinhibited. Right. And I mean, this is sort of more of a, a nuts and bolts question, but um, if, if I've determined for myself that the morning is my peak time, um, am I um, hurting myself by not waking up two hours earlier than I currently do? You know, if I'm really going to get work done in the morning, shouldn't I be waking up at, at six and really maximizing that morning? Uh, you should be waking up at six if your body's telling you to wake up at six. I mean, we are biological creatures and we have to listen to ourselves. And this idea of chronotype, what's your natural propensity, is, 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 is a pretty important part of who we are. And if we constantly go against that, uh, it's not going to work very well. So if you have any, now not everybody has that kind of freedom. So if you, if one has to be at work at 7.30 and, you know, you're going to have to wake up, you're going to have to wake up earlier. But a lot of writers have a little bit of discretion over that. And so I would wake up when you wake up um, and go to sleep when you go to sleep. I think that if you listen to your body and go to sleep when your body wants to fall asleep and wake up when your body wants to wake up, that's better than trying to listen to a lot of these, you know, life hack sites mm -hmm. that are telling us, oh, the only way to be a badass is to get up at 430 in the morning. Right. And most of us, don't do well at 4.30 in the morning. Right. Yeah, there's this romantic notion of writers, you know, who get up in the middle of the night to get pages done. And, you know, it, there's there's just something very heroic about that. But I agree with you that that's sort of, it's a it's a myth. Um, it's it's much better for, for all of our sanity and probably for the work if we actually get more sleep and then just take advantage of the, the peak trough that you're talking about. If you, if one gets eight hours, gets sufficient sleep, and then actually is intentional and deliberate about protecting that peak and taking three or four or whatever it is hours to undistracted, do your heads down writing and do it every day, you're going to produce pages. There's no question about it. Right. What about taking breaks? You talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, yeah. It's, it's important to what? I mean, you know, Stephen King has this thing in his book on writing about how he, you know, sits down at his desk and he doesn't even get up to go to the bathroom until he's gotten a certain number of pages done. Mm -hmm. um, you say important, take a walk, go socialize, take a little bit of break every hour, right? 
Well, not, it doesn't necessarily have to be every hour. Uh, and, and, and for me, at least, it varies based on time of day. So, I again, I'm much more vigilant in the morning. So I can sit in the morning and sit straight for maybe 90 minutes in the morning sometimes um, before I want to take a break. Mm-hmm. And so, again, one of the keys is to listen to ourselves. In the afternoon, meanwhile, I usually, you know, I often will take a break. Um, because, you know, cause I can't see straight, you know, right. I'll, I'll take a break like every half hour. Right. It, it's, it's interesting because especially with writers, cause writers tend to be very good observers, but they tend to be pretty crappy observers of themselves. And so if they bring their observational skills to themselves, they're going to learn a lot. So you need to observe, how are you feeling at this time of day? What are you getting done at this time of day? What's your brain? How's your brain function at right. this time of day? And if you're observational, if you're a good observer about those things, you're going to see a lot of clues that are going to allow you to design or redesign uh, how you work. Now, what we know more broadly is that breaks are really important, that most people are not equipped simply to power through for huge numbers of hours. And what we also know, it's sort of like sleep, is that there's almost no evidence that powering through is a way to get more work done or better work done. Mm. And what, what there, where there is evidence is that taking some breaks and taking certain kinds of breaks, uh, there's a huge body of research on this showing that breaks, and I'm not talking like two-hour breaks or anything like that. I'm talking like a 10-minute break, 15-minute right. break, that, that, that breaks actually restore our energy, enhance our mental acuity, boost our creativity, particularly if we have the right kinds of breaks. And what we know about breaks is that the best breaks, the most restorative breaks are, I find it interesting, and it could be interesting for writers, social breaks are more restorative than solo breaks, uh, which I think is counterintuitive to a lot of writers. That seems to be what the evidence shows pretty clearly. Uh, the second, another dimension of it is, is that moving is better than stationary. So taking a break hmm. where you're moving around is better than one where you're sitting still. Right. Third is that is that outside is better than inside, and there's just there is the 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 evidence very broadly on the beneficial effects of being outside of being in nature, even even in urban environments, is is massive. And we know that fully detached beats semi detached. So when you take a break, you're better. You know, don't spend your break with your nose in your Instagram feed. Maybe don't even talk about work. Right. So, so there is a set. Uh, there is, in some ways, a platonic ideal of breaks out there, which is, you know, in the especially in the afternoon. You know, I don't know once. I, I mean, seriously, like once in the afternoon, or God forbid, twice in the afternoon, go out and take a ten-minute break outside, walking around with someone you like, leaving your phone behind. Totally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think taking a break to just, you know, change screens and just bring up Twitter instead of Final Draft, I think, you know, it, it's not restorative at all. In fact, it, I think it gets me just deeper into an exhausted funk. Um, so I think that's really smart. I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have research on this, but I can, I can tell you my own anecdote. I, I have never opened up Twitter, spent time on Twitter, closed Twitter, and then felt better. Right. Smarter, yeah. more creative happier. Right. Right. Never. And, and the idea should be to regenerate ourselves. I mean, that's the point of a break. Yeah. Right. So what you're better off doing is going out and taking a walk around the block, um, 
you know, uh, outside. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that people who have dogs in some ways have a built in advantage because they take their dogs for a walk. Right. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. Those of us without pets have to be a little bit more deliberate. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that I liked about the book so much that it really gives you sort of permission to follow your own sort of, I don't know, biochemistry or whatever it is. Um, you know, I think we're fighting against this like I was saying before, this myth that, you know, we're supposed to sit down at our desks at 9 a.m. and we're supposed to leave at 5, having just, you know, worked the entire way through. And in fact, that is not the best way to get good work done. That taking breaks to go to the gym, as you talk about in your book, taking breaks to take a walk, they're so important. And if you end up only having gotten sort of six consecutive or six hours altogether of writing done during that day, that is still a better six hours than if you had just sat there for eight to 10 hours and, you know, probably would have only gotten maybe three or four hours of actual work done during that period. There, there is not a single writer I know who won't produce work and probably decent work if they spend six hours heads down, undistracted over the course of a day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, rather than, you know, giving ourselves the, you know, a lot of times we like to give ourselves the illusion of it. So, oh, I spent eight hours in the office, but how much, you know, how much of it was on Twitter? How much of it was answering answering email? How much of it was, you know, staring into space? So that's, that's probably the least evil thing you can do. Moving things around the to-do list. Yeah. yeah, How much of it was doing, you know, spending your peak again. and, And this is important too. So we have our peak time. And for me, for years and years and years, you know, I would go into my office and the first thing that I would do would be to answer my email, right. which basically is a way to say, Me give myself a false sense of accomplishment, right. but basically squander one of those very few hours of peak time. Again, I, I want to add something, though, for, for the owls out there, uh, because you know the traditional world of work is really bad for owls. Um, you know, if you, have, if you are somebody who is hitting your cognitive peak at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 p.m., then the traditional world of work is brutal for you, uh, and so I think this is this is one reason why uh, many owls opt out of traditional right. workplaces. Right. Now, again, if you're working in an organization or something like that, you know, you do have to make certain kinds of accommodations. But what I think is important is is that the organizations begin accommodating the people rather than having everybody trying to fix themselves to match the organization. Right. No, you talk a lot about sort of the institutional changes that we need to make in the book, which are, which are terrific. Um, but I, I want to ask you about something about, uh, you know, you mentioned Daniel Kahneman's work, who I love. Um, something that struck me when I was reading his book, um, which you touch on in your book, is uh, there's a certain time, if you've committed a crime, that you want to go before a judge. And it occurs to me that I think it can be um, – you know, something very similar holds for a writer who has a pitch to make for when they go in front of a buyer. Totally. So can you can you tell us a little bit about that a, a time of day as it relates to decisions made by judges or TV network buyers? Sure. Um, so let me tell you about that judge study and then we'll, we'll widen the aperture a little bit and, and talk about what it says about decision making in general. Yeah. So this is a study uh, done by Jonathan Lavav at Stanford and a couple of Israeli researchers that looked at the decisions that Israeli parole judges were making. And so they looked at the likelihood that a prisoner would be granted parole by one of these judges and they matched it up to time of day. And what they found was a, a, this very peculiar pattern, which was that early in the day, judges were you know, up around maybe 60, 70% in grant, granting parole. As the day proceeded, there was a precipitous drop downward to 
I think it was somewhere in the teens. But then when a judge had a break, immediately after the break, her odds of granting parole went way back up. And then they and then they plummeted again. And then she had another break. And immediately after that break, the, the odds of getting parole went way back up again. I think there was like a seven X difference in your odds of getting parole. If you were seven, that, that if you were somewhere around here, if you were the person who was asking for parole at the immediately before the judge had her break, you had about a 10% chance of getting parole. If you were the person immediately after the judge had her break, you had something like a 70, 70% chance of, of um, getting parole. Of, of grand, That's of get, insane. Of parole. No, it's terrifying terrifying uh, and, and, and there's there, there's other there are other things in in you know and this is what we don't realize is how much time of day has an effect in our cognition so you see it in how you, you see it in other aspects of uh jury and judicial decision making so there's some very interesting experimental evidence showing that when juries deliberate in the morning they actually exhibit relatively little racial bias when they deliberate in the afternoon they do, they exhibit enormous amounts of racial right. bias and it's it's because our willpower has been zapped throughout the day, right? And the easier thing to do for the judge is not to grant parole, right? Because if the person goes out and commits another crime. I'm not so sure it's about willpower. A lot of the research on willpower, it's as a, that, that specific phenomena has been called into question. Okay. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I think when we, when we see the evidence um, – I think there's there's something I think there's something a little bit different going on, and I think it goes directly to what you were initially asking about, which is decision makers, mm-hmm. and, and it's and it's this: when we are confronted with a decision, and that's what you're doing when you're a prisoner asking for a parole, or you're a screenwriter going into a pitch meeting. When we are when we are you know basically confronting people and saying, "Decide this," the decision maker typically comes to that decision with a default answer. And the default answer is typically no, right? Uh, because that's easier, right? Uh, and so the default answer in parole is no. Judges don't get in trouble for not granting people parole, right? And you see it in you know in in a, you're making a sales call, no is a default answer. You're asking somebody out on a date, typically no is a default answer. <laughs> right. that, that, that was my experience. <laughs> and so what you want to do is you want to go in at a time when people are more likely to overcome the default. And that tends to be early in the day and immediately after breaks. Now, I don't want to oversell this idea here, too. What we're talking about here is differences in your odds, essentially. So let's say you're going into a pitch meeting. You have to pitch an idea. And under ordinary circumstances, you have a 9% chance of getting a yes. Sounds about right. Um, Okay, let's say, but if you pick the timing right, maybe you have a 12% chance of getting a yes. So even with that 12% chance of getting a yes, you still have an 88% chance of getting a no. <laughs> still, but I like those if odds you're better. Doing some, totally, but also if you're doing it a lot, right. that three percentage point increase matters right. if it's something that you're doing, you're doing a lot. And there actually are some really, really interesting lessons beyond like the time of day to other aspects of timing, particularly when it comes into like, like serial competitions, S-E-R-I-A-L competitions. So if you're up against, um, I don't know, maybe they're, they're, they, they're having um, uh, some kind of session where multiple people are pitching on the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's constantly, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in that, what's it called? 
Well, just during the summer, broadcast networks, these executives are hearing, no joke, they're hearing 10 pitches a day. Okay, great, great. So that's interesting. So, so you think about in the, so that's actually, you can, again, they're, they're, the, the science is giving us, gives us ways to turn the dial again, one or two, three, four percentage points in our direction with something like that. So in those kinds of serial competitions, one after another, after another, if you're reasonably well-known, if you're sort of the, you wouldn't really have an incumbent in those kinds of things, but you're better off going first. If you know the other people who are, happen to know the other people who are pitching and there are a lot of strong candidates, uh, you're generally better off going first. Hmm. Uh, if you're a challenger though, if you're not the default choice, all right, uh-huh. uh, then it's generally not a great idea to go first because they'll go back to the default. Uh, if there are a lot of competitors, then going later can give you a small advantage and going last can give you a big advantage. Going later, and, and, and the circumstances when going later is advantageous are this. If the, peer, if the decision maker doesn't really know what they're looking for, uh, which might be the case in a lot of these pitch meetings. Absolutely. Uh, if, if they don't know what they're looking for, going later can be advantageous because the first few pitches help them figure out what it is they're looking for. And so the other people burn their time with essentially honing the criteria of the decision makers, and you can come in when they're more likely to make a decision. When there are a lot of competitors, there is an enormous advantage in going last. And you see this in evidence of figure skating competitions. You see this in evidence of American Idol competitions, both of which have been the data for those. Have, have, there's some pretty good papers out there analyzing that. So again, the point of all this is think about you know, you know being a writer or screenwriter. Okay, It's like, what am I going to write? How am I going to write? Who am I going to have as collaborator? Who am I going to pitch this to? You know, we agonize over all these kinds of things. But when it comes to the decision about when, when in the day should I do it? We don't take it that seriously. And what I want to suggest is that these when decisions are, they're not more important than how or who or what, but they're as important. I love that. I also, I want to talk about um, the peak end rule, which you touch on in your book. Um, in yeah. Kahneman's book, he talks about it. The example is, is a colonoscopy. Yeah, that's a famous example. Right. But I, you know, I think it's really relevant. And again, you talk about the endings of, of some screenplays in, in your book, but I think this peak end rule has a lot to say about the endings of movies and TV shows um, because endings really do shape our experience of, the enti- of watching the entire movie or the entire TV show. Do you, do you think that's right? Oh, there's no question. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no question that the way that anything ends has a disproportionate weight on how people evaluate the totality of it. You see this in research on vacations. People will evaluate vacations based on, in part, you know, o- you know overweighting what happens at the end. Right. You will see this most dramatically, in, in my view, in how people evaluate entire lives. So if you give people a, a person who was a jerk for most of his life and then became a nice guy and then suddenly died, and so, so basically most of his life he was a jerk, and then in his final year he decided to become a nice guy and then died unexpectedly. If you take that person and compare him to another person who was a nice guy most of his life and then became a kind of a jerk and then unexpectedly died, people will evaluate the totality of those lives pretty much the same. Right. And with the colonoscopy, it's, it's that if you have an exam that, you know, hurts a bunch and lasts a really long time, you're going to actually like that better than one that is short, doesn't hurt that much, but hurts a ton at the end because all you're going to remember is that pain at the end. That is the colonoscopy 
famous colonoscopy study that that gave us the that gave us the peak end role. Now, I think that for screenwriters, there are other uh, writers of all kinds. I mean, we know a lot about endings. In general, people prefer endings that 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 elevate. That doesn't necessarily mean like happy endings in the kind of sunny, smiley, Disney-fied sense. Right. But it but it does mean that people prefer rising sequences to declining sequences. Right. So this is one reason why memorable movies often have a poignant end. Poignancy isn't pure happiness. Poignancy is as a positive emotion that becomes more memorable and more enduring because it's sprinkled with a few doses of negative emotion. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think a lot about the the TV show Lost where, you know, people really enjoyed it for, I forget how many, seven years, something like that. I mean, it was a really top rated show and got great reviews. And then a lot of people think they blew it with the last season. They didn't have sort of an overall answer to the mythology of the series. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a letdown. And that is how people remember the show today. They remembered it as a letdown, which is insane because the great yeah. majority of the show gave people so much entertainment and enjoyment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. And I also think that it, it, that exact same phenomenon has not with the same ferocity as, as, as lost, but has clouded a little bit of people's views of Seinfeld and, and the Sopranos. Right. Yes. Yes. Completely. Um, that's one of my favorite quotes that I think it was David Chase said that we should switch the Sopranos and the Seinfeld finales. The Sopranos should end with all of them in jail, <laughs> and Seinfeld should just cut out. <laughs> okay. That's actually a good line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know we got to go in a second here. Um, oh, before I forget, by the way, I want to thank you on behalf of my sister. You blurbed my sister's book. You gave her a Who's your sister? My sister is Jessica Tracy, who wrote a book on pride. Oh, yeah, I had no idea. Of course, yeah. <laughs> she's uh, she's uh, she she like uh, uh, I I she's an uh, uh, an Amherst College graduate named Jessica, and I that's happen right. to be married to an Amherst. I happen to be married to an Amherst College graduate named Jessica. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but she said, yeah, she said your book Drive was just incredibly helpful in her work sorting through okay. um, yeah intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. She yeah. told me. That's awesome. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask about, right before we, we um, play a clip, I just wanted to ask about how to motivate for the following day's work. You talk about this a little bit in your book, how to basically end your work day to set you up for the next day. Yeah. There are, again, I think there. what I want to offer is a few um, techniques that are uh, rooted in the research and people should experiment with them. One of the things that I have been doing is I try to have is a, is a little bit of a closing ritual uh, that involves uh, progress. So one of the things we know from the research is that the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job is making progress in meaningful work. And so what I do at the end of every day is I, and I, I use something called I've done this, which sends me an email, it sends me an email at the end of every day. It says, what'd you get done today? And then you, you, you respond to the email with what you got done that day hmm. and then it compiles it for you. So for me, like, like during like writing periods, it'll be like, you know, I wrote 811 words or <laughs> uh, I ran four miles or th- that kind of thing. And right. so, and then what, then as you accumulate data, you can go back into the calendar and say, mm, what, you know, I don't know, what did I get done on the 11th of November? That's uh, interesting. Or, uh, it also in the email will say, what did you get done today? Yesterday, here's what you got done one month ago, here's what you got done. Six months ago, here's what you got done. And I also imagine that since you know in the back of your mind that you have to answer that question at the end of the day, you're more likely not to waste a day because you don't want the self-loathing uh, that comes with having to say, did nothing today. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it could be. I, I think w- one of the things that surprised me about this is that on days that feel frustrating, if you take that moment to figure out what it is you got done, you actually got a little bit more done than you realize in the frustration. Oh, that's could be a great a feeling. Rule. It, could be yeah. that, it could be that your day was ending on a on on that. So that's right. so that is that is one thing to do. Other writers have done. I think there are some interesting writing hacks in you know in the timing stuff. So other writers have um, done things like. Um, when they end their writing, they leave a sentence unfinished. Mm. They, they stop in the middle of the sentence because there's some evidence that when you stop in the middle of a sentence, in the back of your mind, you're going to continue to be thinking about it. But what it also does is it gives you some momentum when you sit down the following day. Right. So instead of starting with that blinking cursor taunting you, you can simply finish a sentence and that can give you a little bit of, of momentum. Yeah. The other thing that I'd like to do, the other th- thing from this book that I like about with regard to writing, again, very simple, lightweight tips is uh, I am now obsessed with reading the last lines of novels, especially novels. Uh, we're always, you know, we know a lot about first lines of novels, you know, it's the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael and whatnot. But uh, the last lines of, of especially novels, um, and I imagine screenplays too, are also very, very telling. Um, so, um, so there's a, a few, again, a, another t- time-related temporal thing right. with regard to um, uh, writing. Yeah, I love that. And th- I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. You know, I've, I have to start um, a new phase of a project today, and I'm just dreading it. But I know that if I, if I am able to start it, and I just get halfway through a paragraph or halfway through a scene, it's going to be one billion times easier tomorrow to just pick up that right. scene than have to just exactly. get mentally prepared to start, which is so hard. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, going out here, um, I asked you uh, for a clip from a movie or TV show that you're a fan of and might want to talk about a little bit. So what I thought I could do is just set it up and then we could talk about it and then we'll say goodbye to you. We'll let you go and, and we'll play the clip. Okay. So you chose a scene very happily for me from Jerry Maguire, written by Cameron Crowe. And this scene is super early in the film. It's actually over the opening credits. And yes. it's basically uh-huh. the, the moment that incites the character journey for the film. So, so why'd you pick this scene? Well, um, here, here's the thing. Like, my view has been that people who, that the work that we do can be a source of meaning. Not all the time, not every day but more often than we believe. And in this scene, you, you have a character who essentially has a dark night of the soul and starts thinking, thinking about how he can do his job in a way that is truer to himself. And I just think that it's full of such incredible language. Yeah. And um, what, what I love is he says toward the end, he, so he writes his manifesto, and at the end he says, you know, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I'm not even a writer. And then he, and he takes it to like a copy place and, and he says, this is my favorite line. He says, even the cover looked like the catcher in the rye. <laughs> and, and what we know about the catcher in the rye is that the, what Holden Caulfield disliked more than anything else were phonies, phonies. And so I think it's really about authenticity. And, um, and there's a great line at the end where the copy place guy says, that's how you become great, man. You hang your balls out there. Uh, And I do think that there is this in the writing I've done about work is that there is this 
latent search for authenticity, search for meaning that is usually kept suppressed. Um, and when it's out, people feel good. But as you know, in the plot of this movie, it doesn't work very well right away. Right. Um, by the way, do you, do you know who the guy at the, um, at the copy store is? No, who is that? It's uh, Jerry Cantrell, the founder of Alice in Chains. Cameron Crowe is, oh, you know, no big music guy. Yeah, gave him a cameo. There are a lot of fun cameos in there. Oh, I didn't. I did not know that he has. He has kind of rock star hair. <laughs> yeah, so he does. That that doesn't that doesn't <laughs> surprise me. What was the the um, the? There's a great movie for about writing that Cameron Crowe did about um, uh, almost famous. Yes, uh, which is which I thought was quite good. I love almost famous. Uh, yeah, it's sort of a it's his answer to the apartment, the old Billy Wilder classic. Uh, very similar exactly. plot. Yeah. Um, exactly. But yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more about, about what you just said from, um, about Jerry Maguire. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'd be very curious to, to hear from, from Cameron Crowe about sort of when he decided to make that the opening scene, because it is such an inciting incident, but it's, you know, in his kinds of movies, you usually have to, to wait a while to get there. And he decided to put it over the opening credits. I saw James L. Brooks speak once who executive produced the movie and um, he said that Cameron went through triple-digit drafts of Jerry Maguire. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think it was probably a long process, but it turned out great. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a really terrific movie. I think it holds up pretty well, and I think it gives uh, a pretty good insight into some of people's frustrations with work. To me, it's the it's, – if you're going to have like a 45 – uh, you know, like a 45 record on, on work you have on the A side office space on the B side, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, all right. So, so we're going to let you go. Um, and we're going to play the clip on the way out, but thank you so much for, for coming on, for talking to us. We would love to, to talk to you again sometime. I, I'd love to be back. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Okay. Bye. I began writing what they call a mission statement, not a memo, a mission statement, you know, a suggestion for the future of our company. A night like this doesn't come along very often. I seized it. What started out as one page became 25. Suddenly, I was my father's son again. I was remembering the simple pleasures of this job, how I ended up here out of law school, the way a stadium sounds when one of my players performs well on the field, the way we are meant to protect them in health and in injury. With so many clients, we had forgotten what was important. I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I'm not even a writer. I was remembering even the words of the original sports agent, my mentor, the late, great Dickie Fox, who said, The key to this business is personal relationships. Suddenly, it was all pretty clear. The answer was fewer clients. Less money. More attention. Caring for them. Caring for ourselves games to just starting our lives really hey i'll be first to admit it. what i was writing was somewhat touchy-feely i didn't care i have lost the ability to bullshit it was them always wanting to be i took it in a bag to a copy mat in the middle of the night and printed up 110 copies even the cover looked like the catcher in the rye i entitled it the things we think and do not say the future of our business. That's how you become great, man. Hang your balls out there.
All right. That's a really great scene from Jerry Maguire. Thank you so much to our producer here at the Yelp Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, uh, please do us a favor and subscribe. And as always, you can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or drop me a line at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.